John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 107 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. That's much appreciated. And follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. One of the things that we will talk about today is how the coronavirus might impact the presidential campaign between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But before we get into that and other topics, uh, the state of the virus itself, there's been some, at least a sense of a melting of the ice here in America over the last week or so, uh, even here in California, which has been the iciest of all places, despite the fact that we have not had much of the virus in California has started to reopen. In fact, all 50 states in America have started to reopen in some way, shape or form. The stock market has done uh, exceedingly well uh, over the last few days, including today. Uh, I am not convinced that that is a long term proposition as of yet. In fact, last week I predicted that in a few months we would be shocked to think that the stock market, the Dow Jones, was at 24,000 in mid-May. I may be wrong about that. I hope I am. But uh, I still think that we've got a long, long way to go before any sort of a semblance of an economic reckoning uh, to all of this has actually been done. I mean, we are going to pay at a very, very dear price in all sorts of ways, 
not just obviously the people who have died, but the economic shutdown has caused catastrophic unemployment, loss of businesses. I don't know how you possibly recover that. And not to mention we're printing money now to keep everybody afloat. There has to be a price for that eventually. Uh, but the stock market, at least in the very short run, uh, seems to think that things are, are going to improve. There's also been at least uh, a couple of different situations where companies have announced that they are on a strong track to finding either a treatment or a vaccine for the coronavirus. Uh, We've heard so much about this over the last several weeks, yet nothing definitive. Uh, Experts continue to say that we will not have anything definitive about that until at least the end of the year and that people should not get their hopes up Uh, prematurely for that. But there are some promising signs along those lines. And I think that has contributed to what I'm referring to as the melting of the ice. But just as the ice seems to, to start to melt, there are still a lot of forces who would very much like to keep us where we are or to get us back to where we were, including, oddly enough, the formerly pro-Trump Drudge Report. The Drudge Report, uh, which really played an incredibly important and underrated role in Donald Trump becoming the Republican presidential nominee in 2016, Uh, which for a long period of time set the agenda for the conservative media in the United States and, frankly, around the world, Uh, the Drudge Report is still exceedingly in the category of alarmist, almost to a comical perspective or or proportion. Uh, As I speak, their headline is that over a quarter million Americans will have died from the coronavirus before August. And it links to an article that has a couple of very devastating projections that are new, one by the University of Pennsylvania uh, out of uh, Philadelphia, which projects, and I find this just to be amazing, uh, and I cannot possibly be accurate based upon the current circumstances, but they project in, the, in, in this prediction that uh, based upon everyone reopening, that if, uh, if we don't have uh, you know, everyone's social distancing between now and July 24th, that in the United States of America, we will have 5 million cases of coronavirus, I assume that's confirmed, and 290,000 deaths. So in other words, another 200,000 deaths in the next two months. So we've been at this now for a little over two months and had just over 90,000 deaths, although there is still and there will continue to be controversy over whether that's an overcount or an undercount. The Democratic governor of Colorado uh, just announced recently that uh, several hundred deaths in Colorado have been expunged from the record because they were not actually because of coronavirus. And he indicated that he has questions about the counting. And again, he's a Democrat. Democrats seem to be in favor of overcounting or or claiming that there's an undercount and Republicans exactly the opposite, which just shows you how screwed up this whole situation is that somehow the counting of deaths has become a highly, highly partisan issue. Uh, But uh, this projection, which is getting a lot of attention today, makes no sense to me at all. Uh, 200, about 200,000 deaths in the next two months, here we are near the end of May, uh, and then obviously June and July, that's so in two months, two months we're going to have 200,000 more deaths based upon 5 million coronavirus cases. Now, the first thing that I think about there is, well, hold on a second. If we have 5 million cases and 290,000 dead, uh, that's a 6% death rate. Uh, 
6%. Nobody believes that that's the death rate. Now, now there's the big problem of how do you define those 5 million that you're projecting will either have already gotten or will get the coronavirus. What does that mean? That they've tested positive for it? Uh, or that they just had it and didn't even know they had it, and therefore they didn't get tested. So there's there's an ambiguity there, but nobody seriously believes that the death rate for getting the coronavirus is is 6%. And if you're somehow going on the idea that, okay, this is just confirmed cases of people who think they have it, they get tested— and uh, and it gets confirmed. And then of that uh, of that pool of people, about six percent die. Well, that's also got a problem with it because getting five million confirmed cases <laughs> by July 24th is going to be impossible at the current rate because we've we've been through this for now over two, actually three months, essentially. And we're at just less than 1.5 million confirmed cases. So how the hell are you going to get 3.5 million confirmed cases of coronavirus in two months? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's just flat out ridiculous. And and yet this is taken very seriously. Uh, I believe that there is, I'm not saying that this is the motivation behind the projection, but there's the effect of it intimidating the hell out of governors who are pushing for a more robust and aggressive reopening. And there's no question that the media has an agenda there. The Democrats seem to have an agenda because they see reopening as a bad thing for them politically because we're obviously in a presidential election year. And if we reopen and things go well, that would be theoretically good for Donald Trump's reelection. And I think that there's a rational explanation for why Democrats are fearful of that, because I think that's a scenario that makes theoretically some sense, far more sense than this projection. And I realize that I have been on the other end of the projections from the beginning. I have been wrong on a couple of occasions, specifically with regard to whether or not we would have more deaths than Italy, which we have more deaths than Italy, not on a per capita basis, but we do have more deaths. How many more deaths people are going to probably be arguing about for for a long period of time. But uh, I, I do not see, based upon the current data, how in the world you get to 200,000 more deaths in two months, especially when th- the engine for this death machine, if you will, has been the greater New York City area. And the greater New York City area is obviously on the other end of the curve now, if only because they're running out of people who are in the target demo of this virus uh, who are getting it, and specifically in nursing homes, and they've been very, 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 very catastrophically late in protecting nursing homes there, just like they were with the subway system. I don't know how when you lose, or not lose, but if that that population base uh, where the virus has hit the hardest is on on the, the downward trend direction, so where are you going to where are you going to get all these people from? Where, where are they going to come from? I mean, I mean, there's a couple of uh, metro so-called hot spots and Los Angeles is considered one of them, although I don't even agree with that because I think based upon population, Los Angeles has done pretty darn well. It's just in comparison to the rest of the state of California, where this virus has been almost non-existent. Los Angeles looks more dramatic. But I, I just I'm willing to say once again, I do not believe those projections are correct. I don't think that they are rational. I don't think it's going to end up being close to that. Uh, and there are other there are other projections that are not nearly as dramatic. 
but those are the ones that will get the most attention because why? Well, the media obviously has an agenda here. The last thing the media wants, there's two elements of this driving the media coverage uh, here in America. Number one, they don't want to be perceived as having been wrong about this. They don't want to be perceived as having uh, panicked, jumped the gun, uh, pressured everybody into a catastrophic uh, shutdown, catastrophic economically, catastrophic medically, uh, catastrophic from a freedom perspective. They don't want to be seen as having been wrong. And while the numbers are dramatic and they are, you know, you get close to 100,000 deaths, that's significant. There's no question that's significant. But to most people, that's not going to be significant enough to warrant an unprecedented, multi-month, potentially permanent, quote-unquote, shutdown of this nature that's going to be this catastrophic economically and in all the other ways that I've already mentioned. It's just not going to reach that threshold. So the media is invested from that perspective, and so they, they you know, they don't, not saying suggesting that they specifically want people to die, but they want the virus story to be uh, 100% validated as the emergency that they portrayed it as being, the catastrophic uh, threat to America that they portrayed it to be. The other part of this deals with Trump. The vast majority of them are against Trump, and uh, they don't want us to reopen. I mean, if you know, their jobs might be uh, jeopardized because of it. I know, I've even made this point at uh, at protest rallies that, uh, you know, you morons in the media, do you not understand what you're doing to yourselves? You're putting yourselves out of a job here. If we can't reopen, there's no advertisers. If there's no advertisers, you're going to lose your job. And people in the media are already losing their job in different aspects of the news media. But that doesn't seem to impact the elite media. The elite media seems to be, at least for now, somewhat uh, inoculated, to use an interesting term considering the nature of this story, against this kind of a threat. The other reason, of course, that the media sees the reopening as a threat is that it could lead to Donald Trump's reelection. Correct. I mean, they don't want that, at least not from a political perspective. They might want it from a financial and business standpoint. That's another story for another day. But intrinsically, they're obviously anti-Trump in the elite media. So there's a lot of elements to this. Um, but I am one, just to be clear, I'm willing to go out on another limb and say, no, these projections, uh, based upon what we're currently seeing, are not accurate. In fact, a couple weeks ago, I made the argument that what we're seeing here is a disparity. And I think this could be part of the problem with these projections. We're seeing a disparity between the number of new cases and the number of new, obviously, deaths. You only get to die once, so every death is new. But the point is that on a daily basis, uh, how many deaths there are. And I think that the reason why these projections are off, and there's been some evidence already in the results to vindicate my prediction on this, because the number of new cases has not gone down all that much. But the number of deaths, by and large, in fact, each of the last few weeks, it has gone down fairly significantly in America each week. And that's because more and more people are getting tested. That's the most important stat that the media never wants to tell you. We are testing enormous numbers of people each and every single day. And the percentage of people who are testing positive is going down, significantly down. 
here in California, it's almost absurd. It's about 6% or less uh, of people who get tested are actually positive. Whenever you test more people, obviously you're just by the nature of math, you're likely to get more and more people testing positive. It's like, you know, using a larger net to fish with. But when you do that, you're also going to get a different breed of fish. And in this case, the, the breed of fish you're going to get is not nearly as sick and therefore doesn't have nearly the chance of dying. But I don't think that the, that element is being used in the projections because I still think they're using the presumption of what it means to be a confirmed case from the beginning of this. If you were a confirmed case at the beginning of this, especially here in America, you had a much better chance of dying than you do today. And I think that's part of why the projections are off. But when I look at particular places here in America and around the world, I'm not seeing any indication that uh, there's any kind of massive spike or change, even as uh, these places start to open up. The places I look at most carefully uh, nationwide uh, are, are some of these red states like Georgia and Florida and Texas, uh, places like that, all of which were, were targeted for doom by the news media for various reasons. There's other places like South Dakota, Iowa, and Arkansas that were also pinpointed for doom. They are all red states because they voted for Trump. They've got Republican governors. They have been far more open than other places in the country. And guess what? There's no indication of any sort of change once they've started to reopen. Now, the media has tried to cherry pick and tried to find evidence of that, and maybe that evidence will eventually surface. But so far, it has not. And, it, and I think we're at the point where it should have by now. Uh, I know it was predicted a lot longer ago than now, uh, even before they started opening up. Uh, but a lot of that was wishful thinking by a news media that is dead set against reopening for the reasons that I've already mentioned. Worldwide, I look at Germany and I look at Sweden. Uh, Germany, because Germany has started to reopen for the last couple of weeks. And speaking of the Drudge Report, it was about a week or so ago that the Drudge Report uh, was very uh, upset about the idea that uh, Germany was experiencing a spike since they reopened. And they, are they going to be pressured into, into going back into a lockdown situation? Because Germany has been a, a model for this, really. I mean, they, they shut down. They tested like crazy. Uh, their curve uh, got uh, bent very quickly and is, has been on a downward trend for, for quite a while. For considering their 83 million people, they have not lost very many at all on a per capita basis. And, and their reopening has actually gone quite fine. The, despite uh, re media reports to the contrary, Germany has not seen a sustained spike. They had one day uh, where they had some bad data and everyone went crazy. Uh, but as of yesterday, and I, I haven't, their, their data isn't in for today as of yet, they have had 11 consecutive days with less than 1,000 new cases in a country of 83 million people. And, I mean, could, it, could that change? Yeah, but we're now you know, a couple of weeks into their reopening. Shouldn't there be a change in that? 
Uh, and if it, if, if it doesn't happen in the next week or two, there's a darn good chance it's not going to happen. Sweden obviously has gotten a lot of attention because they didn't have a, a, a full-on government-issued shutdown. They have shut down, but most of it's been voluntary. Yes, their economy has been hurt. And yes, they lost a lot of people uh, per, on a per, per capita basis in comparison to their Scandinavian neighbors because they had a nursing home problem early on. But after they got past the nursing home problem, which skewed the data and the numbers, their numbers have been, no, not great, but not horrible. They're nowhere near the worst in Europe. Uh, and, and, and I always ask, so why isn't Sweden the worst? Why, why is France so much worse than Sweden? I realize geography plays a role in this, but it's still the same continent. I mean, it's not that far away. Uh, why, why would France, which locked down incredibly hard, be doing so much worse at the same time period uh, and, as Sweden has done? And, uh, and over the last several days, although they had a worse day today, still not anywhere close to catastrophic, Sweden uh, over the last four or five days has actually done pretty darn well and, and certainly is in no way, shape, or form in a situation where the hospitals are, are overrun or that they haven't flattened the curve enough to be able to go on uh, with life. And I still believe that in the long run, Sweden is probably going to be at least somewhat vindicated here. But more importantly than anything, to me, what Sweden shows is there was no fear of catastrophic runaway exponential growth without a government shutdown. And that's the really the essence of this whole thing. That's that's the, that is the boogie monster driving all of this is the fear that everyone's going to be New York City if we don't have a government shutdown. Well, the government shutdown didn't help New York City. In fact, I believe the government screwed up New York City and the surrounding area in dramatic fashion with both the subways and the nursing homes. And, and one of the more interesting things that has happened in, in recent weeks is that Andrew Cuomo, the media's hero somehow in all this, despite all, all the loss of life in, the, in New York City and, and in the surrounding areas directly because of New York City, is that Cuomo uh, mentioned at a press conference that he was rather shocked that about two-thirds of the people who are now being hospitalized in New York City are actually people who were staying at home. They were people that were staying at home. And he was shocked by this because this, of course, is the exact opposite of what the whole stay-at-home order is all about. Well, we're starting to find out more and more information that staying at home might actually be the dumbest thing you can do. That being outside, especially on the beaches, by the way, which are still closed uh, here in California, at least to a certain degree, and, and around the country and the world, which is just asinine, that that actually might be the safest place to be. Because a lot of the assumptions and presumptions we have made have been totally false. And so here we have people who are inside, supposedly safe, and they're the ones being hospitalized in New York City. You cannot be serious! And, and so... I believe that uh, so much of the narrative that we have been given here was at least somewhat false, if not completely false, and that it's possible that we've been handling all of this totally wrong. And when I look at the data in the United States, and I've actually done some pretty intensive calculations here, and I haven't gone through every single state, I eventually will, but uh, a couple of days ago, I went through the top 10 states that have been uh, hit hardest with the most cases that are both Democrat states and Republican states. 
the top 10 states from each category with the most cases. Now, the Democratic states in this category have a, have a little bit more population, about 125 million people compared to 107 million people in the top 10 Republican states. These are the states that have had the most cases, and that's by, it's way over half the, the population of the United States. And it's not close. The Democratic states are all shut down far more than the Republican states are. And yet, it's the Republican states that have been far safer. In fact, with regard to deaths, you have about a five, to this date, about a five times greater chance of dying in the lockdown states than you do in the freer Republican states. Five times. Five times. That's pretty significant. Now, there are other reasons for this other than just uh, who the governor is. In fact, uh, hilariously, uh, uh, some Democrats and liberals have tried to claim, well, uh, we've now determined that governorship doesn't really matter in all this. It's how the people react. Well, aren't you just proving that government shutdowns are stupid then? That we can actually rely on people to to take the right precautions and to act responsibly, which is, as a libertarian, always been my perspective on this. Why are we having the government force this? Shouldn't people take personal responsibility? I realize there are a lot of morons out there, uh, and you know there's the, there is an issue of of the greater good. Uh, but I just have never felt like this was going to reach that threshold uh, of catastrophe that we required a total government shutdown. And the statistics so far, a hundred percent, back me up. But more importantly, as far as where we're going from here, I just don't see any data to support this idea that an opening is going to so dramatically change the, the, uh, the trajectory of the statistics that somehow in two months we're going to have 200,000 more people die. I mean, obviously I'm hoping that's not the case for a number of reasons, but I, I just don't see it happening. Uh, we're going to continue. I, frankly, right now in America, we are the definition of having flattened the curve. There is a, an incremental progression of new cases and deaths that is way, way beyond, be below the threshold of what hospitals can handle. That's what we were told was the goal here. We have clearly reached that goal. But when it comes to reopening, we have lost our nerve. And the goalposts have been moved. And flatten the curve has turned into a bait and switch to, to varying degrees across the country. But I will admit, it, even here in California, I have been somewhat surprised, at least with the verbiage that has been used by our governor, Governor Newsom, or as my seven-year-old daughter refers to him, Governor Poosom, because uh, she really hates him, uh, and for good reason, although she doesn't want the schools open. She wants, to make, she wants to make it clear she does not want the schools to be reopened. She doesn't have to worry about that, at least until uh, September time, and that's still being debated. But but the reality is that even Governor Newsom has started to at least talk a decent game about slowly reopening. Uh, I am skeptical of that. In fact, my greatest worry in these reopenings is that we do this partial reopening and then we stop there. I think that that is a very likely scenario, that we're going to have a massive division between the red states and the blue states, and that the places that are not fully reopening get stuck in this limbo era, this, this, this limbo range between a total shutdown and something that resembles normal life. And why I am very concerned about this is because I understand the way human nature works. 
we are far more likely to revolt against a total shutdown than to revolt against a partial shutdown that doesn't seem that bad in comparison to what we were just experiencing. Humans are creatures of expectations. And we, it's a remarkable how quickly we adapt. And things that a few months ago would have been unthinkable, we are actually prone to putting up with, especially when it's not as bad as what we just experienced. And so, for instance, here in California, I can see a scenario where somehow things that are completely absurd are accepted as a quote-unquote new normal and that there's not enough pressure to then change to going back to the way we were. And once you're in a new normal, that becomes exceedingly difficult to change. Let me give you a really hardcore example. I have always believed that the most successful terrorist attack in history was one that was completely unsuccessful. And what I'm referring to is the so-called shoe bomber. Remember the shoe bomber? Not long after 9-11, he tried to ignite a bomb via his shoe on a plane. And it failed miserably, all right? At least it failed in the short run. But it was actually incredibly successful because what has happened since then? To this day, we are all still, the, of course, no one's flying anymore, but, but until the coronavirus, when we were still flying, we were all forced to take off our shoes, every single one of us, before every flight. Now, think about the, the unimaginable number of man hours and resources that were squandered because of, now it doesn't take that long, it usually, you know, maybe 30 seconds to a minute of your time. But when you multiply that by millions and millions and millions, if not billions of people uh, over time, that is a huge amount of time and resources that are squandered because of that. And we just accepted it. We just accept, okay, this is the new normal. We have to, to take off our shoes, put our shoes uh, through the metal detectors and, and put up with that pain in the ass. Well, now we're going to see that in every walk of our life, every element of our life. And sometimes it's going to be ridiculous uh, the restrictions that are going to be put on us. And I, I, that is the part of this that scares me most. Because I would act, part of me would actually rather us stay on total shutdown and then one day, you know, as quickly as possible, go back to normal life. Because this limbo thing, uh, that scares me from a human perspective. That scares me that that might be a situation where the government never gives up their control over our lives because they don't have an incentive to. It's not in government's nature to give up power once they get it. And especially when you're in, a, in liberal areas of this country, like here in California, where, where it's a fantasy world for them right now. They get to dictate every element of our life. And, and so that is, that is a scenario that, that bothers me greatly. And by the way, it's a scenario that we're going to talk about shortly. It, I think it's going to have an interesting impact on the presidential campaign between Joe Biden and Donald Trump that I've not heard anyone talk about. And it might end up playing to Trump's favor. I'm going to talk about that shortly. But first, let's talk more specifically about Trump and the virus. And, and you know that we're, the, the ice is melting on the on the impact of the virus when the media is now getting distracted uh, by things that are really, frankly, just stupid and silly. 
And there, there may not be any better example of this than the revelation that President Trump uh, provided the other day when he uh, told America that he is actually taking hydrochloroquine. Now, hydrochloroquine is, is a drug that is, has been used for malaria and some other things uh, quite successfully for quite a long period of time, especially in Africa. Uh, but there was some belief, and that Trump uh, was very premature in pronouncing this belief, that it could help either in the treatment of the coronavirus or somehow in preventing the coronavirus. And let's be clear, uh, there's very little the news media would like more than for Donald Trump to get the coronavirus. Let's, I mean, can we, can we be frank about that? I mean, that's pretty true, isn't it? Correct. Uh, I mean, and, and part of it's because they love that story. Part of it's because they don't like him, and sometimes understandably so. But they, they just really would love for Donald Trump to get the coronavirus. And, uh, and I'm sure that you know, Trump obviously does not want to get the coronavirus. And I don't think that Trump would die if he got it because he would be under immediate uh, tremendous uh, medical attention. And while he is old, he's not in the, the most dangerous uh, category of, of people who, who would be vulnerable to dying if he, lost, if he got the coronavirus. But he reveals uh, that he has been taking hydrochloroquine. There's some now change in the story as to when he started taking it and, and why he started taking it, for what purpose, and whether or not this has been approved by a medical doctor. You know what? I, I frankly think this is overblown. I mean, I'm more than willing than anybody to, to say that Trump is a moron and that he's doing stupid things and that this is dangerous. And, and do I think that um, he should be publicizing that he's doing this? No, because that means that other people are going to do it and they might uh, believe that they're somehow immune to the virus when they aren't really and that there are uh, obviously potential uh, side effects to this that have been documented and they have been documented, but I do think they've been a, a bit overblown based upon my rudimentary understanding of the issue. And there was no better example of, of being overblown than the, the bizarre spectacle of having the president of the United States announce on live television, including on Fox News Channel, his formerly favorite network, that he's taking hydrochloroquine and then have the anchor at the time, Neil Cavuto, be in his mind forced to, to issue a warning, not just a little bit of a warning, a dramatic warning to their audience to not emulate the president when it comes to taking hydrochloroquine uh, as a, a potential treatment or a prevention of the coronavirus. And here was that very bizarre episode as it sounded on Fox News Channel a couple days ago. If you are in a risky population here and you are taking this as a preventative uh, treatment to ward off the virus, or in a worst case scenario, you are dealing with the virus and you are in this vulnerable population, it will kill you. I cannot stress enough. This will kill you. So again, whatever benefits the president says this has, and, and certainly it has had for those suffering from malaria, dealing with lupus, this is a, a leap that, that should not be taken casually by those watching at home or assuming, well, the president of the United States says it's okay. Uh, even the FDA was very cautious about this, unless in a clinical trial, safely and deliberately watched. I only make this not to make a political point here, but a life and death point. Be very, very careful. Yeah, 
I, I thought that was going way overboard. I, I mean, I, I get that uh, you could probably make a, a precautionary notice of, hey, uh, this is this has not been uh, recommended by the FDA or, uh, you know, you, you might want to consider, uh, you know, consulting with a doctor or what have you. I get that. But you, it's going to kill you. Uh, that seemed a bit dramatic. Uh, and although I do have to say it is bizarre that we have reached the point where the president of the United States uh, is being corrected on his own network <laughs> about what kind of medication he's taking in a way that might jeopardize the health of the viewers. I mean, that's where we are, folks. You cannot be serious! Uh, and it's just, it's just mind-blowing. I mean, there's so many mind-blowing things about the Trump presidency. I mean, he, he tweeted the other day a video created by some anonymous... Uh, a meme maker that imposed his face over Bill Pullman's face from the climactic scene of Independence Day, where he's giving a dramatic speech about how they're taking on the aliens and that America is fighting for its own existence. And that if we succeed, it'll be a, a worldwide Independence Day. And I mean, what? 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 It's just flat out ridiculous. I, I, I mean, so many levels. We've just lit. I mean, I, I tweeted that I would give whatever was in my bank account. And I was serious. If I could find somebody who's been in a coma since about uh, the summer of 2015 and I could show them that video of a tweet of the president of the United States with, with his face superimposed on the main the president in Independence Day under the circumstances we're currently facing and that uh, this is where we are I mean that would be amazing to see someone who's been in a coma since uh, summer of 2015 react to all of that but that's that's where we are on all of this. And Trump um, was infuriated by what Cavuto did. Uh, he then went on an attack against Fox News Channel as if uh, his favorite network has not been subservient enough to him, as if uh, getting fellatio from Fox News Channel 23 out of the 24 hours a day just isn't enough. It just doesn't do it for him anymore, apparently. And so he wants to find a new outlet. Uh, One American News Network, I guess, is going to try to be the replacement for new Fox News Channel. But they're a complete joke. I mean, I've been to their studios several times. They're in a, 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 a crappy strip mall outside side of San Diego, uh, you know, basically uh, an, an office that's probably smaller than most people's houses. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to be the new Fox News Channel, I guess, in, in Donald Trump's world. The, the reality is he needs Fox News Channel, and they are mostly beholden to him, except for a couple people like uh, Neil Cavuto. Now, this hydrochloroquine thing, of course, created quite a stir. Because, you know, again, the media loves this story. Anything to distract from from the element of the virus that, uh, one, is starting to fade and, two, people are tired of. Uh, but they really love this idea of, you know, is the president vulnerable to getting the virus? And Nancy Pelosi went on CNN with Anderson Cooper. And after exchanging pleasantries over Anderson Cooper's uh, new child, which was rather strange, uh, Nancy Pelosi was asked about the president taking hydrochloroquine. And, uh, and of course, uh, she uh, took the high road here. Uh, I'm, I'm being facetious. Uh, she instead decided that this was going to be an opportunity to do a mic drop and to create a viral moment on Twitter. And uh, this is what that sounded like. He's our president, and I would rather he not be taking something that has not been approved uh, by the scientist, especially in his age group and in his, shall we say, weight group, what is morbidly obese, they say. So 
I, I, uh, I, I think it was, it's not a good idea. Wow. Oh, that'll leave a mark. I mean, I, you have to give Nancy Pelosi this. She knows how to get under Donald Trump's skin and calling him morbidly obese uh, was intended to do exactly that. And of course, it did exactly that. But I don't think it was productive. It was not the right thing to do. Uh, it was obviously intended purely to create a viral moment, uh, which it succeeded in doing. But it also just shows just how completely dysfunctional our entire system is on both sides. Uh, and how uh, substance means nothing anymore. I mean, here we are in the middle of a, a, uh, an alleged uh, catastrophic pandemic, uh, one that's a very serious situation. Uh, we are facing economic peril. Uh, we're changing our entire system of government, essentially. Uh, we're not even sure if we're going to be able to go back to school in September. And this is what we're worried about. I mean, really? Come on. You cannot be serious. I, I, I would like to think that um, we're better than that. But no, we're not. No, we're, we're clearly not better than that. This is what we are. This is who we are. And, and frankly, part of me is starting to think we we're getting exactly what we deserve uh, because of this incredibly poor leadership we have on on all sides. Uh, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Now, the Democrats led by Pelosi have passed a three trillion trillion, not billion, trillion dollar second aid package. The first one, I believe, was just over two trillion. By the way, I got my stimulus check. Yes, I felt, I felt very, very odd about uh, opening up a stimulus check that had Donald Trump's name on it. I, um, I, I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump, but it's definitely the first time that a politician has ever sent me a significant amount of money in the middle of a uh, election year. Uh, I do think that, and I've mentioned this to on this podcast to uh, Democratic uh, Chairman of the House Budget Committee, my good friend John Yarmuth, uh, that this was a problem for Democrats, that you're allowing the President of the United States to send millions and millions of voters cash money in his name in an election year. I mean, that has to have an impact. Correct. Uh, and so um, and it's obvious that Trump did this on purpose. Correct. Uh, he went out of his way. In fact, they apparently even delayed uh, the payments so that his name could be put on the check. And I do think that that is going to help him. How much? Who the hell knows? It might even just be a subconscious but the Democrats have passed a plan for a second stimulus package, which is even more robust, allegedly, than the first. Basically, it's the most contrived uh, uh, campaign election uh, bill you could possibly imagine. First of all, because everyone gets money, in, including illegal immigrants, apparently, which didn't get money directly the first time. Uh, but most importantly, they, it extends unemployment benefits until January of next year, which, you know, you look up contrived in the dictionary. Gee, what, what happens in January of next year? Well, they hope that Joe Biden will be the new president of the United States. And it's once the unemployment benefits run out for all these newly unemployed people that all of a sudden their incentive to go back to work dramatically changes, right? I mean, this doesn't take a, an economist or any sort of rocket scientist to figure this out. We're and, and Republicans did try to make this point when the first stimulus bill was passed, but they got shouted down because we were in such a moral panic and we had to do something to fix you know, this catastrophe that we were in. Uh, and so what we did was we, we created a massive disincentive, massive disincentive for people to go back to work until at least the end of July. 
And and it's clear cut. I mean, for for lower paying paying wages, especially in a situation where you're confident that your job will still be there if you don't decide to go back, there is no incentive, no incentive for lower uh, waged workers to go back to work right now because they're making more money doing nothing than they would be at their jobs. I mean, that's that's where we are on this. And uh, and, you know, human beings are just going to do what they perceive to be in their self-interest. So we have this very strange dynamic, unprecedented as far as I'm aware of, where we have massive unemployment. But it's also almost impossible for employers with lower wages to get them to go back to work. And so if Democrats are able to extend that to January, then there'll never be any kind of economic recovery before the election. And of course, what they're hoping is that come January, there's a new president. And then all of a sudden, and you know, even Eric Trump, who's one of the dumbest people in public life, the, the son of the president, uh, went, went on Fox News Channel and, and said something that a lot of people believe. A lot of people really do believe, and it, there's a, there's not, uh, it's not completely and totally irrational because there's some truth to it. They really do believe that once Trump is ousted, and it was interesting the way he said this made it sound like he thought Trump was going to lose, but that once Trump loses, the Democrats' view of the virus is going to completely change, that all of a sudden the virus is going to be under control and it's time to get back to work and it's trying to get the economy moving again because obviously then they will get credit for it. And that at least subconsciously, and I do believe more of this is subconscious than conscious, uh, but it's remarkable. It is remarkable on social media that there is a direct correlation between people's views of Trump and people's views of the virus. People who who don't like Trump think this is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's going to get worse. We have to shut everything down. And people who like Trump uh, are in exactly the opposite boat. And both people are uh, both groups of people are are not. Uh, being objective about this. They're not looking at this from an unemotional, fact-based perspective. They're seeing what they want to see. They're seeing everything through the prism of their view of Trump. And there's no indication that this bill uh, that was passed by Pelosi and the Democrats is going to become law. Trump has said it's dead on arrival. They're going to have to pass something, but it will be interesting to see how far the Republicans are willing to go and are going to be willing to accept the idea that they could be seen as being against, uh, you know, giving people money. I mean, so from a political standpoint, that could work for Democrats' favor. Hey, we just passed a $3 trillion second surplus. We want to give you even more money than we already gave you, and Republicans are stopping that. Uh, I could see that working to Democrats' advantage, and the polls already indicate the Democrats are headed to a, a rather significant victory from a legislative standpoint, in the U.S. House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, the, the latest head-to-head uh, -head matchup uh, for, for congressional races is, is that Democrats are leading by about eight or nine points over Republicans, which is a very significant margin. That's even more than the margin of the midterm election in 2018, where Democrats uh, defeated Republicans. We'll see whether or not that holds up. But obviously, all of this is in the context of a presidential election. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how I think the virus is likely to impact how that campaign will go down. First, uh, with regard to the way the polls currently are, uh, and let's be clear, 
I know Paul's got a lot of grief, and understandably so, for supposedly blowing the 2016 election. But the reality is that the national polls were actually pretty darn close at the end between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. They, they, they almost, the average turned out to be almost exactly what transpired. It's just that Hillary lost the Electoral College. She won the, the popular vote nationwide by a little less than 3%. And she was projected to win it at the end by just a little bit more than that. So they, the national polls were not that far off. And when you have Donald Trump and Joe Biden, two exceedingly well-known figures, I mean, these are exceedingly well-known figures, I think it's rational to say that, you know what, the polling is probably pretty accurate. Well, what's amazing about the national polling is how unbelievably consistent it has been even during this pandemic. I mean, we have the greatest crisis uh, you know, socially and culturally in the history, modern history of America, at least, and uh, with all these massive changes. And yet the polling between Trump and, and Biden has barely changed at all. In fact, uh, if it has changed at all in the last couple of months, it has changed in Trump's benefit. The, the average of polls is now a little bit less than five points nationwide. A couple of months ago, it was about six and a half points in favor of Joe Biden. Now, to be clear, that's not how we determine presidential elections in America. Presidential elections are determined by the Electoral College, which Democrats learned all too well in 2016. And it is theoretically possible that the same thing could happen again. I don't think that the national polling is all that significant to who's going to win unless Biden is winning by at least six points on average. If it's five points or less, that puts Trump right in the danger zone. That puts him in the realm where he could easily win the Electoral College while still losing the popular vote. And that's the track we're on right now. And this is after two months of literally horrific news. This is after the President of the United States told Americans or theorized about whether or not Americans should inject themselves with disinfectant in order to to uh, you know pre- prevent the coronavirus. I mean, my God, it can't get much worse than that, can it? I mean, really? You cannot be serious! And so, and despite all that, despite 92,000 Americans having died and our economy uh, going into the crapper and all these unemployed and uh, our lives being torn apart and all this suffering, there's been no change in the polls at all. I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable. And in fact, as I said, if anything, there's been a pro-Trump movement to the polls. Now, there are state polls, and those are the polls uh, that maybe really do matter since the states are how we determine who wins a presidential election. There are some state polls that show that Trump is in big trouble. Uh, there are recent polls showing Trump losing both Arizona and Florida by seven and six points, respectively. These are two states he won in 2016 that he absolutely positively has to win in order to have a chance this time. If he loses either Arizona and especially Florida, he's effectively done. So if those polls are real and they hold up, then Joe Biden's going to be the next president of the United States. And I still think that's the most likely scenario. But it is far from set. It is far from set. In fact, last week there was a battleground poll showing that Trump was actually leading among all of the key states. He wasn't leading all of the states, but if you took all the key states and you combined them. Now, I had problems with the methodology of this poll, and so I don't think it's the be-all, end-all, but it was remarkable to see in a poll where Trump was losing nationwide. This is 
is so important because it goes to this disparity between the, the national uh, general population and the electoral college calculations, which are two totally different things in this very, very divided country. This was a poll where Trump was losing by, I think, six points in the national polling. But within that same polling pool, if you took just the key states, the battleground states, and you and you combined all of them together, Trump was actually leading Biden by a f- uh, several points. I think it was almost by the same margin that he was losing the national polling by. Now, that's a problem. That's a big problem for Joe Biden, if that's even remotely real. And so, so we're really heading on a track that is incredibly similar to 2016. It's remarkably similar right now to what happened in 2016, where the Democrat wins the, the general population, the, the, the popular vote, and Trump still maintains power by uh, somehow winning the Electoral College. Again, he cannot do that without Florida. So if, if Florida and Arizona really are going towards the Biden camp, none of this matters. But I am interested in this concept of how the virus is going to change this campaign. I mean, this is going to be a campaign unlike we've ever seen before. And, and here's a scenario that I thought about recently that I do believe plays towards Trump's favor. And this kind of goes to the, the limbo scenario that I outlined a few minutes ago, where we don't have a full reopening that we have a partial reopening, which is really what it looks like we're headed towards. It really looks like over the next few months that we're going to do this this very contrived, very PC, uh, very virtue-signaling-based partial reopening where there's a big difference between the way the red states do it and where the blue states do it. And the red states are going to be far more free, far more open, and if their numbers don't explode, as the left hopes, that's going to be very, very good for Trump. And it's also going to change the way the campaign works, because think about it this way. Biden is going to be completely beholden to the rules that the left has created for dealing with the virus. He's going to have to, if he goes out, he's going to have to wear a mask. That's going to be big problem number one. So he's going to have to, if he, first of all, he has to go out. As far as we can tell, he's not even allowed out of his basement right now because everyone's terrified he's going to get the coronavirus and die because he's so old. So, so he's stuck in his basement right now, assuming he's allowed to eventually go out. He's going to have to wear a mask. He's not going to be allowed to get close to anybody. Forget about rallies, which, by the way, if there was a total shutdown, I think that would actually work to Biden's favor. Because if there's a total shutdown and there's no chance of rallies, that works towards Biden because he's terrible at rallies. He can't get big crowds. Trump is great at rallies. He loves them. They energize him. His crowds love it. It, it reinforces their belief in him. And, uh, and it's great television. So a total shutdown would actually work to Biden's advantage. But here's a scenario I see that would work towards Trump's. If we have a essentially two country. If we have two different countries, a red state opening versus a blue state opening, and Biden is beholden to live by the rules that the left have created, he can't get close to anybody, he has to wear a mask, he can't hold rallies, he's stuck in his basement, and Trump is out there with no mask, holding some semblance of rallies, able to shake hands with people or at least get close to them and show his strength and show that he's willing and able to come close to some semblance of normalcy in the way that he's dealing with things, 
that messaging is going to be incredibly powerful, especially if it doesn't result in any sort of spikes. Now, I can guarantee you every time that uh, Trump does have a rally, assuming he does, and I think he will try, assuming that he, he tries to have a rally, there will be a microscope used by the news media to see whether or not there are any coronavirus spikes in that area in the weeks after he has left. And if there's any way for them to cherry pick the data, they will do it. But if if it is true that a, a, especially an outside rally, uh, and we're seeing more and more evidence that an outside rally, if done properly, should have no impact at all on the coronavirus numbers. If that, in fact, turns out to be true, it is going to create a messaging problem for Joe Biden that I believe might be uh, devastating. It might be devastating. I mean, just think about all the scenarios that we're going to face in a in a situation where half the country is shut down and the other half of the country really is not shut down hardly at all. And where Biden is beholden to this bizarre set of rules uh, where Trump is not going to be beholden to them. By the way, one of the things that I've thought about is, okay, so they're going to have debates, right? I'm sure they probably won't have crowd a crowd at the debate. But you know what? Trump's going to be able to say, I want people at that debate. I want people at the debate. And Biden's not going to be able to say that. Biden's going to want to have, uh, you know, one moderator, you know, 12 feet away from Trump and Biden, and, and they're going to be 12 feet away from each other. And he's going to want this thing to be to be as shut down, uh, 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 you know, as, as pro shutdown and as consistent with the shutdown as possible, because that's the way his side views this. It's a lot like the sex abuse. Here's the best analogy I can come up with. It's a lot like how. They both have combated sex abuse allegations. Trump has no handcuffs on when it comes to sex abuse allegations. He's allowed to fire away, and it's been very effective for him, very effective for him, regardless of how guilty or not guilty he is. It has had no impact on him because his base loves it when he attacks. So he's allowed to go all guns a-blazing, Go screw yourselves. Uh, this woman's not even good looking enough for me to have, have sexually abused. And it has no impact on him. Biden has to play by the rules of his base. And the rules of his base basically put two hands behind his back and maybe one leg. And he's hopping around trying to go up against an allegation by Tara Reid that's complete bullshit. It, it's not real. It didn't happen. He's innocent. But it makes him look guilty. Because he's, he's, he is restricted. He's restricted by his base. Well, it's going to be the same thing with regard to the virus under the scenario I currently see as likely. And that is that Biden has to virtue signal. He has to show his base how, how much against the virus he is. And when they have that debate, one of, one of the more fascinating moments is going to be what happens when Donald Trump, if he's smart, and that's a big if, goes over to Joe Biden and offers to shake his hand. What happens at that moment when Donald Trump offers to shake Joe Biden's hand? What does Joe Biden do? What does Joe Biden do? If he shakes his hand, his base is going to go bananas. Oh, my God. Ah, ah. If he doesn't shake his hand, he looks like an asshole. He looks weak. Trump looks like the stronger guy. And I'm telling you, while America has changed, we still want strength in our president. And it's going to be very difficult under these circumstances of a partial shutdown for Joe Biden to appear to be strong 
in the face of Donald Trump. It's going to be difficult. Now, I'm not saying it can't be overcome. There are huge problems for the Trump campaign with regard to how unpopular he is, the nature of the pandemic, uh, how, what a disaster it's been, how much blame he deserves for, for the disaster that it has been, that the death toll is going to continue to climb. It's going to go over 100,000 soon. I don't believe it's going to get to 290,000, but it's going to be at a big number regardless of what it is. Our economy is going to be crap. The statistics are going to be crap. Uh, he's not going to be able to claim any sort of victory on the economy, although you know, there, if, if, he, if he gets any kind of resurgence, I'm sure he'll try, but it's not going to work. So there are huge structural problems for Donald Trump getting reelected. And, uh, and Joe Biden you know, doesn't really offend middle America. He plays well in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, the key states. But I'll tell you the other thing that's going to hurt Joe Biden in those states, the governors, especially of Pennsylvania and Michigan, have been tyrants. These people are nuts. And if they don't calm down, uh, you know, they're going to hurt Joe Biden. I mean, just just to, today, or I guess it was yesterday, the governor of Pennsylvania went after Ben Roethlisberger, the Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback. I'm not making this up. Went after him in a public statement because he got a haircut because the Pittsburgh Steeler quarterback got a haircut at his home from a friend that he didn't even pay for. And this has become something that the governor of the state is concerned about. It's just flat out ridiculous. It's like he's trying to get Trump reelected. And I know people from Pennsylvania who are not Trump fans who are so horrified by the governor, Wolf, of, of Pennsylvania that they're now going to vote for Trump. And if he wins Pennsylvania, and especially if he wins Michigan, he's got a clear path to reelection. He's got to lose at least two of those three, three states of Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So this is in theory right now. Obviously, it can all change depending on where the virus goes and our reaction to it. But as of today, this is a scenario that I don't think Democrats are, are fully considering, that, that we're going to have a campaign here that in a lot of ways could play to Trump's advantage, assuming that the virus remains under some semblance of control, which is a big, big if, I understand. But I wanted to throw that out there because I don't think a lot of people are thinking about it. Now, with that said, I still believe that Joe Biden is the favorite. I still believe if the election were held today, he would win. Uh, it wouldn't be a landslide, but he would win. And I still think that there's a better than 50-50 chance that he'll win, but it's nowhere near certain. And I'm going to put the chances of, of Donald Trump being reelected as of today at 30%. Again, as usual, please, no wagering, and please remain uh, socially distant. Uh, also, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this uh, podcast via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. Thanks for listening. This is the Global Story Network. 